No other book has so profoundly impacted so many lives as the Bible. Welcome back to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. Today we see that as Moses prepared the children of Israel to enter the promised land without him, there were various concerns on his mind. We hope you'll join us as Pastor Daryl continues in Deuteronomy chapter 21 on Simply the Bible. Have you ever felt that you had so much to say and not enough time to say it? I feel like that every Sunday morning. I believe that's how Moses felt as he stood with the children of Israel on the bank of the Jordan River. He knew that he would soon die and they would cross over the, into the promised land. But there were so many things to remind them of before they departed. We continue with Moses' last words in addressing the case of an unsolved murder. We pick it up in Deuteronomy chapter 21. If anyone is found slain lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which is not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. An atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. The issue here is taking responsibility for blood guilt. Whenever innocent blood is shed, it cries out to God for justice. But if someone is murdered and nobody knows who did it, then who pays the price? Who makes the atonement? Moses gave them a way to make atonement and put away the guilt of innocent blood from among them. Otherwise, the judgment of God would come upon them. In our culture, we've become so accustomed to innocent bloodshed, to violence in our streets, shooting rampages, and unsolved murders, that we don't consider the guilt that such things bring upon society at large. But if we don't deal with this blood guilt, then it calls for the judgment of God. It was the elders and judges' responsibility to solve the crime, but where they could not, then they were to take responsibility for what had occurred in or around their city. Therefore, they would measure the distance from the dead man 
to the surrounding cities to determine the nearest city, and the elders of that city would take responsibility for making atonement. The city elders would take a heifer which had not done any work or pulled with a yoke to a valley with running water where the soil had not been plowed or sown. There they would break the heifer's neck and the elders would wash their hands over the heifer. They declared that they were innocent of shedding this blood and that their eyes had not seen who did it. They prayed that God would not lay the charge of shedding innocent blood upon them and in this way, atonement, or covering, as the word means in Hebrew, would be provided on behalf of the innocent bloodshed. Whenever we speak of atonement in Scripture, it always points to Jesus Christ. Even in this case, where the heifer was not offered in the altar as a blood sacrifice, the death of the animal pointed to the substitutionary death of Christ. There is no other way for our guilt to be covered but through his sacrifice. But the shed blood of Christ not only covers guilt, but also takes it away. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and desire her, and would take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother for a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money, you shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Now, like it or not, part of the spoils of warfare would be the women whom the soldiers would see and desire and want to take for their wives. But of course, in that culture, it was a very brutal culture. And many times in warfare, they would just take them right then and there. They would rape the women. And so God brought through Moses an order to this whole process by which they could take the captive women and make them their wives. Now, there is something about a man when he sees a beautiful woman that it's not too much unlike a fish when it sees a lure. There's just something within that's going to grab hold of that, you see. And so Moses gave an orderly way that he could make her his wife without succumbing to brutish passion. First, he would bring her into his house. Then he would have her shave her head and trim her nails. Now, what was the reason for that? It's very possible that it was simply to humble her. She had been an idolatrous person, and now she was coming into a new culture, and the shaving of her head, the trimming of her nails would establish a whole new life for her. Then she was to put off the clothes of her captivity again, this was putting off the whole memory of being taken captive and starting afresh. She would mourn a month for her parents. Now, this was compassionate because obviously after something so traumatic as, as being taken captive and your parents being put to death, she would be in no mood to be anybody's wife. This would give her time to mourn and prepare her heart to become the wife of this man. 
Then following this, he could take her as his wife. Now, in waiting the month, it would also give him an opportunity to see if this is really the woman that he wanted to marry. It could be that during that month, he would realize that the chemistry was just not right. And it would keep him from violating her during that month so that she would become defiled. If he came to the end of the month and he decided that, you know what, I don't want to marry her, then he could release her, but he couldn't sell her as a slave because he had humbled her. She would be released and be free at that point. Now, I see in this an order that God has established for how we practice our sexuality. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Never harm or cheat a fellow believer in this matter by violating his wife, for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God wants to be Lord over every area of our lives, including the most intimate area of our sexuality, and we can control ourselves with his grace and power. Verse 15, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now Moses once again allowed for a practice that was already occurring without really endorsing it, and that was the practice of polygamy. It was culturally acceptable, but that doesn't mean that it was right and good. One of the big problems with polygamy, Moses points out, is that it was very likely that one wife would be loved more than the other. Of course, this is exactly what happened in the case of Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel, worked for seven years to get her, and then on the wedding night, his uncle did the switcheroo and gave him Leah, uh, her older sister, instead, and said, well, you can have Rachel, but you're going to have to work another seven years. So now he had two wives, and immediately it caused problems. There was jealousy, there was rivalry between the two sisters, each trying to have the most sons. Well, when Rachel finally did have a son, Joseph, Jacob gave him the coat of many colors, signifying that he was the one in line to be the firstborn. And of course, that created jealousy with the other brothers. That was a problem. And so Moses was saying, don't do that. If you have two wives and you love one more than the other, then whoever is the unloved wife's firstborn son is to have the rights, the full privileges, as the firstborn, the double portion. 
But again, this whole system was a compromise from God's original intention. It's very similar to what happened when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him if it was permissible for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. And Jesus took them back to the beginning. He said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So that was God's original intention. One man, one woman, one husband, one wife for life until death do they part. But understanding that the ideal is not always met, God permitted Moses to make allowances for these practices that were already occurring. In this case, polygamy. Moses had so many areas to cover in his last words, and the Bible covers every area of life. If only we will listen to God's words and obey them, we will live happier, healthier, more prosperous lives. You've been listening to Simply the Bible, the Through the Bible teaching program of Pastor Daryl Zachman of Calvary Chapel, Treasure Valley. For more information about our church, please visit our website at calvarytv.org. To listen to previous episodes, go to 941thevoice.com or check out our iTunes podcast. Next week, we'll see that as Moses prepares the children of Israel to cross over into Canaan, he continues to remind them of miscellaneous laws, including how they are to treat animals. We hope you'll join us as we continue through the book of Deuteronomy on Simply the Bible. 